3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I am your host, Ray Harkins. I'm recording this in the morning, so I'm a little tired, a little sluggish, but um, bear with me. Anyways, we're sitting here at episode number 45, and my guest this week is Andy Greenwald from Grantland.com, and uh, he's a music critic, and more about him in a minute. Property of Zach. Property of Zach is an incredible site. Uh, visit them at propertyofzach.com. Obviously, I should have said that initially. Um, go there. They're doing something really cool recently where they are launched, they've launched a feature called Decades where they're talking about and revisiting records that uh, came out you know, 10 years ago. Um, obviously, that's a common reflection point. In these days, uh, as far as the quote unquote scene is concerned, where you know, bands re release records and come out with you know, whatever bonus B sides, whatever all that type of stuff. You we've seen it, they've done tours, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but basically, this is kind of trying to get you know into the mindset of where the band was at when they were recording this record. Um, I personally am always a fan of this type of stuff, and um, that's the type of stuff that Property Act does. Great editorial awesome news posts, that type of stuff. So if you haven't visited them, you're fucking up. So go there immediately. And we are proud to be partners with them. It's fun, and I like what they do. So uh, let's see. Some other business out of the way. There is a young gentleman. His name is Tom Richfield. And he basically is my new best friend because he has taken over the editing duties For 100 words podcast. And it's awesome. I just met him online and he was basically offering his services and said, Yo, I could help you out, make the show sound a little bit better. Obviously, uh, you know, I'm not an audio engineer and I do my best to make this stuff sound as reasonable as possible, but, um, you know, I I am not a professional when it comes to that. So, uh, Tom is going to be helping me along in this process and hopefully making this shows sound a little bit better, um, as far as like, you know, making the interviews a little bit more audible. Um, it's tough though, because obviously I'm interviewing people in many different scenarios, whether I'm like, you know, going over to their house and, you know, cause my whole goal is to just make people feel comfortable. So I'm not going to like try to get them in some, you know, uncomfortable closet in their house in order to make sure the sound is, you know, extremely appropriate. But anyways, just a little insight, but Big props to Tom, a digital high-five to him, and um, yeah, I couldn't be more thankful from that perspective. Um, Review the show, visit the website, go to iTunes, drop some star ratings, and if you feel ever so gracious, drop a little, uh, you know, one or two-sentence review of the show, what you feel about it, what your favorite episode is, Um, because I I do find that people really do read those comments and they kind of, they look at what shows people have mentioned as far as like a starting point. Cause obviously, you know, 40 some odd shows into it. It's a pretty daunting task to go back and listen to every single one. And I don't expect people to do that. So yeah, hit some highlights, be like, Hey, this is my favorite show. You should start here. Um, so yeah, do that. You can pave the way. You can be a pioneer for people who are listening to this show. Um, and uh yeah, visit the website 100wordspodcast.com you can find some cool content um, in between shows and it's just another place for you to kind of about kind of find out <laughs> about cool stuff that I find on the internet that is related to the show in some fashion um, one more thing I wanted to get off of my chest before we talked about our guest would be. Um, I am suffering what's called compassion fatigue. So uh, for most of you that know me, just even a little bit, realize that I work for an animal rights organization. Um, I have a dietary preference of vegan vegetarian stuff. Um, And, you know, I I like to view myself as uh, sensitive to the issues of the day. Um, But it comes to a point where... In your life, you obviously are having to make decisions in regards to, I wouldn't even call it the lesser of two evils, but, you know, so related to that. Where it's like, I was listening to another podcast I really, really enjoy called Escape Velocity Radio. Uh, it's done by one of the guys in Propagandi, And um, obviously Propagandi being an extremely politically aware and active band, they're highlighting a lot of things that uh you know you may have never read about. Um like the <clears throat> and a lot of it has specifically to do with Canadian culture. Um but anyways, they were talking about uh some oil pipelines being built in like the northern Canada remote regions, and uh there's obviously some you know environmental impact on that. But anyways the relation they pulled was the fact that obviously like vinyl, like the manufacturing of vinyl is, it needs to be obtained via oil. Like obviously oil is able to, um, you know, power the machines that make the vinyl and like there's um, elements of the actual vinyl that is oil. And so it's one of those things where I personally am a huge vinyl collector and I go, oh, am I, by me having these, possessions and obviously this this fetish of collecting vinyl like am i an asshole am i the one that's like you know ruining the planet and obviously it's like you have to weigh in your own head what you are doing and the actions that you're taking versus what you know your average person in America or in the world is doing as well and so yeah it's just tough because you do feel like you know you are playing into a part of culture that you don't support, um, whether that's the exploitation of the earth for, you know, financial gains um, or whether that's obviously, you know, like I was talking about earlier, like a dietary preference. But, man, it's just uh, it's tough. And I, I think now that I'm approaching my, you know, I guess I could say mid-30s and I've been aware of all this stuff for, you know, close to, you know, 15 20 years in my life, um, and it just becomes hard. It becomes hard to, like, carry on that uh, idea of, oh, yeah, like, I I can't support this. I can't do this. And obviously, it's a matter of usually, like, I can't rather than, like, indulging. Um, but needless to say, I'm still going to collect vinyl. I am obviously more aware of the issues and obviously have known that oil plays a part in the vinyl manufacturing process. Um... But I feel like the actions that I take in many other aspects of my life, um, I I wouldn't know if I'd say balance it out, but uh, I feel comfortable with where I'm at. And uh, ultimately, I think that's all anybody can do. When you are making stands that you don't do certain things because you don't agree with them philosophically or politically, um, you know, stand by that, like stick with it. Because obviously, there's a lot of stuff that we get into when we're teenagers that is difficult to transition into, quote unquote, the real world. Um, but yeah, so anyways, that's that's my takeaway, is the fact you have to be comfortable with what you're doing um, and realize that you obviously cannot be perfect from that perspective. Um, but you have to at least fucking try. That's my biggest thing. People that don't try and are aware of issues, those are the ones where it's like, really? Like, you're not even, like, there's not even one little piece of effort that you're going to put towards this. It's just like, well, whatever. Um, and I get it. Some things are more important to other people, but just try Try to make this world a better place, as cheesy as that is and sort of as hippie as that is. But anyways, Andy Greenwald is our guest. Um, I am a gigantic fan of Grantland.com. Um, it's run by Bill Simmons, who uh, is a dream guest of mine for the podcast because I feel like he is such a... Uh, An interesting person because he has such a massive breadth of knowledge when it comes to sports and pop culture in general. So his website does a lot of sports writing, pop culture stuff. Anyway, so Andy Greenwald is a writer on the site, um, and he has uh, a huge musical background. He's actually a published author. Uh, He's written one uh, nonfiction book called Nothing Feels Good, which is based off of uh, his own experience as kind of an outsider looking in on the scene that was the emo explosion in the late 90s and 2000s, in late 90s and early 2000s. Um, and so I, he also does a podcast called The Hollywood Prospectus Podcast that's published through the Grantland Network. Um, and so I kind of feel like I've got to know him through that. Um, and I just really respect his um, journalism and his thoughts towards, you know, the television shows that he reviews um, and the music that he enjoys. And, uh, yeah, I just... People that you obviously know have spent a lot of time with certain things, you begin to trust, and you're like, okay, like whatever Andy says, like I'll I'll will pay attention to. If he says something sucks, like I might still watch it, but obviously I'll be a little more hesitant to, to put that on the top of my list of things to consume. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that's Andy Greenwald. I had the chance to uh, speak to him over Skype, and um, this is what ensued. Sorry, this intro is a little long, but uh, you know, deal with it. That's what happens sometimes. And I know some of you just fast forward through this, so there you go. Andy Greenwald, Furious. discovery or knowledge about you as an entity as a uh, as a professional person um but the it, i found out about you basically through through grantland because uh, i am uh, obsessed with anything bill simmons has done or has or, or will ever do for that matter um so i started to become aware of your uh criticism and you know your uh your your background and then i pieced together i was like oh wait you did that book back in the day on emo. <laughs> I did.
4: Yeah. Uh, do people still make that connection where it's like, is
3: that the same guy that did that?
4: I don't know. I'm actually very curious about that. I mean, it does it, definitely seem like, you know, um, parts of my life that were separated by a couple of years. So I don't know if the fan base such as it was overlaps at all. I, I, there are some people who I know have been communicating with me like via whatever social media is dominant. Since then, there are a couple people like that, and then I, I do get some nice comments every now and again. But um, yeah, I have no way of knowing. Actually, I, I'm, I'd be curious.
3: Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, you, the only way you do know is when people like me be like, "Hey, I I did this by this," and you're like, "Oh, yeah. okay, there you go." <laughs> um, and so, uh, so yeah, that is just it, it. Was it was interesting, and then kind of what sparked me to want to have a discussion with you further in this form. Was uh, I think you were you know reviewing like the, the best music of the year, and when you mentioned the jealous sound record, it was funny because like I was like, oh yeah, that record came out this year and or this year as in like twenty twelve, yep. um, and like record came out in January, and the fact that you had a memory of that, I was like, dude, records that come out in January are difficult to stay on people's lists. <laughs>
4: Yes, but Jealous Sound records come out so rarely, and every second of it may be happening and then not happening because I just know those guys from from the first time they were a thing. Right. So I, it it never left my mind. I, I'm always happy to give them a little more attention.
3: Yeah, no, no, which is awesome. So, and that's why I was like, well, obviously you haven't, you yourself haven't, sort of, you know, grown out of that music. Which obviously that happens to a lot of people. <laughs>
4: Uh, it depends on the music, but yeah we can talk about it
3: right right exactly but um so were you uh you know kind of going back to the start were you uh born and raised on the uh the east coast in uh in philly right is that where you yeah were? I'm from philly got it, so like the suburbs or philly proper
4: it's funny um I never moved as a kid, but um our zip code moved, so when I was when I we moved there from, from further upstate in Pennsylvania from Wilkes Barrett PA when I was one year one year old. I lived in the same house my whole life through high school. But actually the the house was technically Philadelphia until I was a ten. And then they moved the post office to the suburbs. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so I moved without moving.
3: <laughs> you yeah, you moved with being like, Oh, I, I really I've I've got no control over this. This is what this is what's happening. That's right. <laughs> um and so you, uh, you know, are, how is what was your family structure like? You know, did your uh, what did your parents do, and how was your uh, you know brothers and sisters and all that type of stuff?
4: Uh, I'm an only. It's just me, and um, my dad was uh, the deputy director of an organization called the American Law Institute. He was he went to law school but never practiced law. Okay. Um, and my mom was a kindergarten teacher in Center City, Philadelphia. Okay. Got it. Got it.
2: <sighs> We,
3: you and I have very similar experiences. I mean, I'm an only child. I think that, I think the only childness really plays into becoming obsessed with things. Like, that's just, I think that's within, within like an only child's nature to just be like, all right, like, I, I, I like this and I'm going to become obsessed with it. <laughs> I'm going to try to uh, figure out a way to uh, make a living out of this obsession
4: possibly i think it's also cuz you spend a lot of time alone and uh, when mm-hmm. you spend a lot of time alone you get good at it and you have to fill that time by yourself somehow and you know it tends to be listening to music or reading comic books or or both at the same time right,
3: right. <laughs> did you every time i tell this only child story to anybody else that hasn't had that experience um you know tell me if you if, if this if this sounds like something you would have done um like I mean, I, I played Monopoly by myself, and anytime I tell anybody that, they're like,
5: "That's the saddest thing I've ever heard." Wow. But,
3: yeah, and I don't know if you if if that is also brings sadness to your heart, but uh, I loved it.
4: <laughs> it. It is sad now. I, I think the thing that people maybe don't appreciate about only children is that at the time you just don't know any difference. Right, you're not aware of being lonely if you if you even are. It's it's just the way you are and the way your life is, so you don't even notice it till much later.
3: Yeah, yeah, I definitely created like you know, I created characters where it's like, you know, I, I was versus my arch nemesis and that type of stuff. So, you know, creating narratives in my head that obviously didn't exist at the time. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but okay, well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad that I can make an, uh, an only child sad as well. <laughs> um, and so as you started to, uh, you know, kind of go through, you know, junior high and high school and stuff like that, when did, uh, kind of a, the two part question, when did, um, you know, what, what sort of roles were you filling within, uh, like the typical high school experience and, um, you know, did you enjoy school and was that something you, uh, you know, you paid attention to, so to speak? And then kind of how did, um, you know, sort of independent music in general start to become exposed to you?
4: Um, yeah, I, I'm the rare person that really likes school. I, I really liked, I had a great experience in middle school and high school. Um, I, uh, it was a, I went to a smaller school. I went to a Quaker school outside of Philadelphia. So, mm-hmm it wasn't um, like a big cliched uh, high school like you'd see in a John Hughes movie. It was right. much smaller and, and um, you know, a little bit less stratified in terms of like roles. So I, re- I really enjoyed it. Um, but in terms of um, music, it's funny. I don't really remember exactly when it started, but I always had a big interest in music. I always was buying tapes and remember the first tape I ever bought was like the Thompson twins into the gap in like 1984. Mm-hmm. I remember really liking that. And, um, uh, my best friend off from kindergarten through high school, she and I sort of got really, really into music together. Um, so much so that, uh, we both fell really hard for REM right when the album green came out mm. and, um, right after the album green came out. And then, few years later, probably like 1990, 1991, we somehow convinced our mothers, who thankfully were also friends, to take us to Athens, Georgia for spring break on a pilgrimage to see where REM was from. So that's the level of fan I was even then. And then it was even funnier. I mean, so I, I you know, from from there, I got into a bunch of other bands and, and, you know, by the end of high school, I was, you know, I was I was also always really into hip hop. So I was listening to a lot of my... my my one friend who I, you know, we would, we were obsessed with Biggie for the first time we saw him on T V Raps. Mm-hmm. And then I had other friends with whom I was super into indie rock, like Pavement and Guided by Voices and and uh, Super chunky bands like that. But my, my friend uh, who I went to Georgia with, she went much deeper than I did. She had a zine and through her zine and through working at a club in Philly, she got to know all these musicians and eventually got to know Michael Stipe and actually went on tour with them a little bit and was in one of their videos in the background, which was just like beyond anything I could ever
3: right. imagine. Were but, you, I, I presume there was a, a sense of like, wow, that, I'm pretty jealous of that.
4: <laughs> oh, I was super jealous. I couldn't even imagine how that happened. And she was also just much cooler than I was by the end of high school. So she wasn't, she wasn't that nice to me senior year. It probably by senior. she was nice to me again, but right. <laughs> but yeah, so, um, so it's always been there and then, you know, get to college and, um, you know, started to, meet people who had like similar tastes in music and similar interests. And, mm-hmm. and, um, in terms of writing about music, like it was actually, actually Chris Ryan, who I do the podcast with my Grantland, and you know, we, we both feel really lucky we get to work together. Still. Mm-hmm. I met him in the summer of 96. He was the first friend I made who like, we both really, really wanted to write about music and we sort of bonded over that and that's never really stopped.
3: Right, right. <laughs> and you're, um, I, I wanted to, I mean, because obviously it's, I'm sure it's an interesting experience, the, you know, like going to a Quaker school, like, um, you know, I mean, because I, I don't even know what that really means beyond the fact that um, obviously it, you know, it's it, <laughs> the Quakers, like what people typically know of the Quakers. Like, so what, you know, for one, why did you go there? And um, I guess two, the, um since there was no, um, you know, sort of atypical, like, all right, there's the jocks, that type of stuff. Um, Would you, would you on the flip side, would you have seen yourself like integrating well within like sort of a a public high school experience? Or do you think you would have had a a completely uh, uh, hateful experience that some people have with high school?
4: I don't know. It probably depends on the school. You know, I mean, I I felt really lucky to be at the school where I felt really comfortable. I mean, I went to the same school from kindergarten through senior year of high school so i certainly felt comfortable and felt like i belonged there just because i knew it so well and had always been there
3: oh so it was the same um, like it was the same continuous like you know a junior high elementary all the way up to high school
4: yep i went there from from when i was five to when i was 18 oh okay um, in, so, in uh, campus got it um, got it yeah in philadelphia um there are a bunch of quaker schools and they're among the the better private schools in the city and mm-hmm. uh, or you know the re- in the in the region um Chris, like Chris Ryan, for example, went to a rival Quaker school. He went to the one in downtown Philly called Friend Select. And, um, yeah, and so they basically are just, you know, academically strong schools that are sort of socially progressive in a lot of ways, and, you know, the only real way you know that it's a Quaker school is that you, know, you, you can't wear military fatigues or camouflage, and you can't... Um, Oh, and, and you have to take a class in Quakerism in ninth grade, and every week you have a meet, Quaker meeting for worship, which is actually kind of nice. It's just a non denominational thing where you just, mm. the whole school gets together and you just sit quietly for 30 minutes, and if people feel like they have something to say, they stand up.
3: Interesting, interesting. That's because I, I had a, I went to private schools for most of my life too, like, and I, I went to like a Lutheran high school. Um, and not particularly because like my parents were overly religious or I was you know extremely curious about religion myself, but it was based off of academics and class size because my mom was a high school right. my mom was a high school English teacher and she you know knew that the whole you know forty to one ratio wasn't the way that she wanted her son to kind of grow up and so but yeah but I I liked that smaller school experience too um, and then had friends that went to public high schools that were you know, kind of cut from the same cloth and they, you know, they had a a dreadful experience. And so, yeah, I I mean, you enjoyed school. I enjoyed school and they were both completely unique experiences that
4: people Yeah. The the only difference if I had gone to the local public school is I would have been one year ahead of Kobe Bryant when he was there, which would have been funny, but I don't (laughs) think I would have, I would have gained very much from that.
3: Yeah. It's like, I don't know if the proximity would have uh, rubbed off on you in any
4: way. (laughs) I don't think so. I mean, he, he, he went, he, he actually was going to go to prom with a girl who went to my school uh-huh. um junior prom and then dumped her right before prom because the singer brandy agreed to be his date oh well
3: i mean that's a wise decision i think right
4: i guess i don't know <laughs> i don't know monica was pretty cute i got
3: to say <laughs> um and so like did you were you were you into sports at all in school like any extracurricular activities besides the uh, the music activity
4: i was in all the plays i did a lot of acting in high school, that was really fun for me, and I did. Um, I mean, I did, like cross country running. You had to do some sport, so I, right. did, I did that. I mean, I that was not my uh, that was not my
3: forte. Right. <laughs> you, you participated in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so the uh, li- like you said, you know, as you uh, graduated high school and then started to kind of was it like you know once you started to go to college, you started to wrap your head around the idea of you wanting to write about something that you are passionate about. Um, you know, how did that further manifest itself to where you're like, how do I actually put this into action?
4: Um, yeah, I I always wanted to write and then, um, I'm trying to think when this falls into place. Like Mm -hmm. I think, um, I went to a summer program, I think, God, when was this? It was um, probably like after freshman year of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at Duke. It was called like the Duke Young Writers Camp. And um, it sort of, you you went and like, I mean, it's the nerdiest thing in the world in terms of summer camp. It should tell you everything you need to know. But it was like a thing you went and you, and you wrote stuff, but you could take little classes. And I took a class in, it was a class in music criticism and music writing. And I remember the guy who was instructing, it was like a local, he wrote for the local alt weekly or whatever mm-hmm. in Durham. And he picked a tape out of his, or CD at that point, out of his um, advances for us to all, like, listen to and learn about and then write a review of, and that happened to be the first Pavement album, which is how I discovered them. Wow. And I really enjoyed that experience, and so, you know, I I subscribed to Spin um, in high school and and a couple other magazines that I really liked, like smaller magazines, like Puncture and, and Magnet was being published in Philadelphia. yeah so, so I started to become a fan of, like, the writers behind the reviews, you know, I started to recognize the people you really liked. And so I just, you know, spin was the one that I liked the best. And, you know, there were people who I later got to work with that I really admired, like, like Charles Aaron and Simon Michael and mm-hmm. a bunch of other people. So yeah, by the time I got to college, um, you know, I, I, I met Chris and we talked about like doing our own kind of zine thing and we would have done something online if we could have at the time.
3: Right. If that, um, if that was an option.
4: That was not an option. I, right. mean, I, 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 I I was on AOL chat, I think that
3: was about it. Right, of and, course.
4: Um, yeah, so, but again, college, I, I was the arts editor senior year and, and wrote a music column at the the Independent Weekly Paper and uh, got an internship at Spin after my junior year, and that was sort of when I got started for real.
3: Yeah, I definitely, because uh, I, I did a lot of freelance writing in high school um, and post, uh, you know, like when I was faking like I was going to college. And the, the thing that I always... I guess interested me about it like I mean I, I personally didn't have an end game where I, I wanted to do this as a profession it was definitely just like oh wow this is this is something that um I enjoyed english and I was able to kind of obviously combine both of those worlds um but the thing I guess the the reality for me was like Wow, this is kind of difficult to freelance and like put it all together in order to be able to cohesively make a living. <laughs> was that was that something that was like, oh wow, like uh, this is this is difficult to do?
4: Yeah, well, I, I think freelancing is almost almost entirely impossible, especially, and it's certainly impo- and I, it's actually impossible to just start being a freelance writer. Right, um, <laughs> right. So it's it's just not advisable. Like it's just not. I and I, and I don't mean that just to be just to be coy. Like it's it's. I, I think it's actually not helpful because if you're not working with people or around people, it's really hard to get better. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I never, I, I did not intend just to be a writer. I mean, I, I got hired at spin um, to be uh, an assistant to the features editor, a guy named Dave Moody at the time. Um, oh. And I started right after graduating. So I was, I wanted to be writing and, you know, pretty quickly, there were a lot of opportunities to write small things. And, and, and I was a video game critic weirdly for spin like when i was 23 22 23 because they just didn't have anyone else right right. (laughs) that was default like
3: hey give that to andy
4: it it, literally they were like you know do you uh, my second week there um a a japanese dreamcast showed up in the mail like (laughs) three months before it came out and Dave moody was like um do you like video games i was like i used to have a sega genesis and he was like okay great you're going to san francisco to the sega press conference okay (laughs) that's Um, awesome but um but yeah i mean so I was at spin as a assistant and then as the editor of the website and then as the director of new media for vibe and spin for a few years. So yeah, the thought of being able to, and I, and I didn't leave until I had a book contract. So the, the idea of being able to go right into freelancing was even then, um, when there were more jobs possible, I mean, it, 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 just, it wasn't something that I thought was wise. Right, right. <laughs> that,
3: that was, uh, it could have been permissible in your own mind. <laughs> right. Um, and so with the, uh, This kind of goes into more of criticism as a whole because I think um, even people that are, you know, hyper aware of, you know, music, film, TV criticism, i.e. like yourself where, you know, you start to be able to associate the people that, you know, pen these reviews and the fact that like, okay, like I can trust this person's opinion and be able to, you know, inform my own decisions. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, it's, I mean, it's an important uh aspect to what it is that, you know, is pop culture in general. But, um, I, I, always ask myself where it's like, you know, because I pay attention to this stuff regularly and, you know, a few of my friends do, but not everybody has that sort of connection or understanding because it's like some people just like read a review and they're just like, Oh, why the fuck should I even listen to this? What this person has to say? <laughs> like it, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's, that's something that you've struggled with and it's changed over the years where it's like, Am I am I building this you know sort of relevant uh, fan base for my own personal writing? Like, you know, where where does that exist, and how 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 am I accomplishing this?
4: Um, I mean, that's a tough question. I, I think that for the most part, at the beginning of my career, I mean, I just wanted to be, and I still actually, I'll take that back. Just in general, I just want to be better. I want to get better. I want to be a better writer, and mm. so I'm I'm not really thinking about the audience as much, especially, but that was especially true in the beginning, Right. Um, partly because, you know, when you're starting, you don't have an audience. I really wanted to, you know, to see what could be done with writing, what could be communicated with writing. And, you know, music was a really great thing to start a career with. Um, I mean, I was very grateful to my time it's been because I got to write about, like I said, video games. I wrote about, I wrote about, um, Sports and politics and movies right um but primarily about music, and the thing about music that's great is that you don't actually have to know anything to write about it mm-hmm. and what what I mean is like you have to have strong opinions and you have to know you know the the context and the history of the music you're writing about, but you don't actually have to know how to any craft you don't need to know how to play a g chord right right um, <laughs> yeah. you, you i don't know how to, I don't more... know how to
3: create this
4: this music, right. but I know how to write about it which is why ultimately I, I lost interest in writing about it to be honest but but at the time, I mean, what it, what it does is it gives you a lot of freedom to work on using your words to express something that is, you know, that is only sound. That it's it's not really, it it's not really um, doesn't lend itself naturally to being written about.
3: Right, right.
4: So I I so I really did enjoy that. And then and then the other part of of music criticism that was always I thought misunderstood was that people would say people who said oh you know people who write about music are just frustrated musicians.
3: Right. Or or, 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 f- th- or failed,
4: <laughs> right, or, right, right, right. It, it's but which isn't the case at all. I just felt like everyone just never wanted to give up being a college radio DJ. Mm-hmm. What you really wanted to do, at least what I wanted to do, my greatest pleasure was actually like discovering something and then sharing it with people. Mm-hmm. That was just the most fun thing ever. When there were a couple bands that like I got to, I I got into early on and then had the chance to either interview or you know or put in the magazine. And that was there was always there was never anything better than that.
3: Yeah, I know. That, that's true. That I, it, I've I've always argued that, you know, anytime anybody has like thrown that statement around, it's like, well, you know, for one, you probably don't know this person's history. And maybe, you know, because the idea of playing in a band, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they obviously gravitate towards that fact when they're in high school because, you know, whatever, they see their favorite band play. And they're like, oh, I want to do that. But then the actual mechanics and, um, you know, dedication that it takes to actually play in a band, no matter what level – they're like, oh well, this this is a lot of hard work and it kind of sucks. Like, and I'm not cut out for this, um, but I still want to participate in the conversation. And that obviously this is the perfect uh, opportunity to do so. Um, but yeah, I just so I always find that such a cop out. Where it's like, oh yeah, dude, well you're you're a critic because you 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 couldn't make it with your band. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, like you said, you let so you left Spin when you got your book deal to and that was for nothing. Feels good.
4: Yeah. Um- yeah, it was a funny time. I mean, Spin, after like six months, I, I took over as the editor of Spin.com. And and then eventually I was director of new media for Vibe and Spin. I had a staff of like seven and we were, in a, we were in an office and we had a video guy and we were just doing the most amazing stuff. We had all of these bands, every band that we loved and bands that are kind of big now would come in and play acoustic songs on our couch and we would record it and video and put it on the internet, but no one really had broadband then. So right. no one really got to see this stuff. It was really ahead of its time and it was really fun. Um, and we, you know, we had like Death Cab for Cutie and Spoon and mm-hmm. like Teagan and Sarah, and like all these groups that are relatively well-known now. And, um, so the, the fact that I, you know, I was doing that at 23 and 24 is not a compliment to me. It's more of an indictment of how clueless spin was right. at the time. So they pretty quickly figured out that they, that throwing, like everyone did at that time, like they had no idea what the internet was or what to do with it. So they, uh, in the summer of 2001, they fired everyone except me and, and moved me into a storage closet off the vibe conference room. Okay. And so at that point that I was running websites that didn't really exist, so um, I was writing more and more for the magazine, uh, mm-hmm. which was separate at the time since, I mean, that was separate work. That was freelance work since it wasn't under my job description. So right. once I f- saw that I had that going fairly steadily, then yeah, I got a, I got a, a book contract. you know, I think it feels good and, and quit.
0: Sure. And
3: was that, um, you know, that was obviously, you know, I mean, you were were coming in with a pitch, you were very deliberate about the way you wanted to approach writing this. Um, Did you, um, you know, what influenced you about, you know, that particular music scene? Um, There's two entry points to that world where it's like, one, you were a hardcore kid and then you eventually started to listen to music that, you know, wasn't screaming at you. Or two, you were a kind of an indie rock kid that started to understand that there's this sort of, you know, completely independent culture um, that, you know, also was like, eh,
5: not, not too different from what the band,
3: you know, the more quote unquote mainstream bands were. So it sounds
4: like you were, that, that was the entry point for you. A little bit, not even, qu- not quite. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, I was never, I was always an interloper in that scene. Got I was it. not, um, I came to a completely cold. I remember very well in college when uh, when my taste and and Chris Ryan's taste started to diverge a little bit when I started to go much more into Britpop and like in indie stuff and mm-hmm. so I remember going over to his apartment in Boston where he lived and and playing him the New Bell and Sebastian EP and him playing me Promise Ring Nothing Feels Good and right being like what the hell is this right I did not like it at all I didn't get it. And he was sort of in that scene in Boston, so so I was aware of it only through him. And then, and then I started to get a little more, a bit more aware of the, the various bands when I was um, running Spin.com. dot we, we had to Save the Day come in and perform. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my entry into it was completely just uh, driven by work. Um, that my editor at the magazine, one of my editors, Tracy Pepper, assigned me a front of the book piece on Dashboard Confessional, who I'd never heard or sure. heard of, and um, listened to it didn't get it at all, went to see a show that ended up being the first, the opening of, of Nothing Feels Good, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in November, 2001, seeing uh, Chris play at CBGB's. And it was such an intense and totally foreign experience that that set me off a little bit. Um, right. So writing that story, getting me to know Chris a little bit. And then, you know, I guess that same year I'd already, Jimmy World's um, Bleed American album had come out and I'd fallen in love with that album and, right and uh thursday album so i i slowly started to get a sense of this and and i did a story on taking back sunday and and i started to sort of sketch it out but really what was interesting to me about it wasn't the initially it wasn't even the music it was the relationship between the fans and the and the identity of the fans mm-hmm. uh, the relationship that they had with the music so that was really my in it was really more an it was i had an emotional connection with their emotional connection more than i did with the music and yeah. my connection with the music was really came out of the research that I did for the book.
3: Sure. No, and that's that's interesting because that's what I remember. um, I mean, because like I was saying, those entry points, like, you know, me personally, it's like, you know, I was a hardcore kid, played in bands, and like only was it in like, you know, 97 or 98 when, you know, Revelation started to put out, you know, like the Texas is the Reason record and all that type of stuff. Was I, quote unquote, allowed to start to listen to music that didn't yell at me? Um, Right. And so, you know, like I was entrenched in that scene because I was going to shows, playing in bands, doing all that. Um and so, but I remember when your book came out during that time where it was, um I got your perspective, like where you were coming from because you know you, you were like you said you were writing it as an observer, like you were yep. connected to this via that medium um but I remember when that book came out, and people within the quote unquote scene, which is obviously a very vocal minority, people were like, Oh', fuck that book like this guy doesn't have any idea what he's talking about, and like you know he's just he, Whatever, like there's obviously, you know, I'm sure you heard some of those complaints as it as it was uh, rising. Um, but, uh, you know, did did you find that there was, I guess, uh, sp- splashback from people being like, oh, you know, this is such a, a uh, such a snippet. This doesn't even really dive into anything.
4: I mean, never really. No, I mean, of course, never to my face. Although <laughs> I mean, yeah. The funny thing about it was, you know, I, I felt totally comfortable because I never made any bones about the fact that I was an observer, right. and doing my best to cobble something together. Um, I was also very, very interested in what was happening in that exact moment in two thousand one to 2000, thousand two so thousand. Let's say two thousand to two thousand three, mm-hmm. um, when the book came out. So it was really more about what tracing something that had, you know, always been a joke, as it were, had never ever been able to be defined by by anyone with any. Um, with any continuity um, or the consistency. Um, Something that started as a very specific uh, thing out of hardcore in the eighties and that hardcore idea of the relationship that's only possible in a very small room, like in a basement, you know, Mm -hmm. between the artist and the, and the, and the fan. And then how, thanks to the, you know, the, the softening of the music and the nationalizing of the scene, um, and then eventually the rise of the internet, the music suddenly, we were at this moment, we were going to test whether that hardcore hypothesis that, you know, a one-to-one relationship between who's on the stage and who's in the crowd, um, could that actually be stretched over an entire country? Could a, could an indie scene actually be a national scene? Mm-hmm. And um, with the, with a label like Vagrant that I wrote a lot about, what was interesting to me was this idea that they were actually trying to do exactly that make a national scene. Because even though I wasn't, you know, a hardcore kid or or into punk, I I understood more than, you know, not more than, but as well as anyone, what it felt like to have a secret, what it felt like to um, discover a band in an old fashioned way, you know, through a flyer or through, you know, something in a zine, track down the seven inch or the record and, and play it and then fight to go to the show and how all that was sort of defined you. You know, the fact that you were willing to do all of that work, Whereas when I was writing the book and the dawn of the sort of the youthful internet you know that we certainly are all living in today right. you never had to put in that much work anymore you know you could download all of um, Rites of Springs discography in you know a couple seconds and then say that's who you like or you could change yourself the next day yeah and and so that's that, that aspect of it was really what fascinated me so that's why a large part of the book was not only about that present moment but really about the internet and how I felt like the relationship that came to be thought of as the emo relationship between a fan and a band really was sort of, the music was ultimately taken out of it. It really became the relationship that kids had with each other through their, at the time, live journals. And now, you know, I guess their tumblers or whatever else.
3: Right. Yeah. Whatever, whatever blogging medium is available.
4: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like between, it's just so ridiculous now, but like between my two books, I completely, they missed, I mean, my first book has a lot of stuff about a live journal. I feel I'm wondering if I have a friendster joke in my second book, right. like MySpace and Facebook and certainly Twitter. I mean, never made it to any of them.
3: Right. No, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so funny. I mean, cause obviously it's like something so ubiquitous one moment and then all of a sudden it's like, Oh yeah, that's a dated reference. And it's like, yeah. well, but how could anybody have ever figured that out? <laughs> um, and so I do find it interesting. Like, I mean, like you mentioned, you've written two books and the, um, you know, Writing books uh, seems really hard. I know that's a very yeah, general. That's, that's a very general no, statement, but
4: that that's just, exactly right. That's okay. why I don't do
3: it anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's like after the second book, it was basically just like this is this is not the direction I want to head as far as my writing is
4: concerned. Yeah, it's incredibly lo- it's incredibly lonely. It's incredibly hard. It's incredibly time consuming, and it's it's very lonely. It's and that, and that ultimately isn't very much fun to me. Yeah. Um if I had another story to tell, fiction or nonfiction, um, in a book, I would be against it. My wife might be against me doing it because it's miserable to be around someone writing a book.
3: But, right, right. Because <laughs> you're like, um, oh wait, you haven't moved from your chair in about 18 hours. Like,
4: <laughs> well, that's no different than normal. But it's like <laughs> the, 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 the psychological pressure. Is
3: Got it. Yeah, that's um, true. The deadlines.
4: So I, I was, yeah, I, w- I was, I was done with it. It's just, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's unless it's something you're truly passionate about. Um, in which case, go for it. I, I just find that it was too much stress and work for, for absolutely what was too little reward.
3: Right, right. Yeah, I yeah, know. And that's, yeah, and that's I mean, yeah, that's ultimately the, the, the vision that I've always had of it, too, where it's like you hear about these people who it's like, you know, it's just so laborious. And then once you come out of it and it's like, oh, I got to enter that world again, immediately, because that's kind of what you do if you want to become a writer, like, or I mean, a professional writer in the sense of like, you're writing books. <laughs> um, and sort of to, uh, you know, I obviously don't want to keep you too much longer, but sort of to, you know, like where you're at now and like the, uh, you know, criticism that you're doing for for Grantland and everything like that. Um, like kind of what we were referencing earlier, as far as like you know uh, the the loyalty and the level level of trust that exists um, with you know people that start to follow particular critics and stuff like that, where the internet is now and where it will continue to go. Where um, it, I mean, it, it, everybody has a voice now, and you know that, and everybody else knows that, um, and obviously is willing to share their opinions about everything the way that the criticism is now where it's like, you almost feel like you have to, the shows that you review that, you know, come out on Sunday nights, like you almost have to have something up within the hour and a half that the show is over. Like, cause it's just, there's so much noise. Like, you know, how do you, how do you find yourself trying to, uh, you know, cut through it
4: in a way? You mean, You How do I cut through other people's, pieces or how, how quickly I have to turn the stuff around.
3: But I kind of honestly, both like, just because I, you, you find that stuff, you know, real time, you know, live tweets about the shows and stuff like that. It's just, uh, yeah. So how, how do you find yourself, you know, uh, yeah. Sifting through both of those things
4: in, in terms of like, I guess if you're asking about recaps and TV recaps, like yep. I'm a big fan, I'm a, I'm a big fan of them as a, um, as a medium. I think that it's really really rewarding and really fun to engage with a show on a chapter-by-chapter basis, a week-to-week basis, and particularly also engage with the discussion, the general conversation about the show and with the fans of the show. I think it's, it's helped the Internet, it's helped writing, and it's helped television, honestly, mm-hmm. um, to, be able to, to be able to really engage on that kind of uh, level in terms of my own opinion about doing them, like I, I, am not a big fan of, and I understand why websites do this, but mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of the, just literally recapping what happened in a paragraph and saying, so what did you think? <laughs> um, yeah. I, it, it doesn't do much for me. Like I don't like to write a piece unless I have a point of view about it. So because of that, it takes me a generally, it takes me a long time to do some of these recaps, which is why I'm very grateful when, when most of these shows give me the chance to see the episodes in advance because mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, usually by the end of the season, networks stop. feel like they won't send you the finales in advance. And then those does make for some very, very long nights and, or long next mornings. Right. Because I don't want to lower the quality of the piece. But the amount of work that gets put into the TV show, especially the good TV show, is such that it really deserves a similar level of work and thought and commitment on my end. Right. So I want to do justice to the to the piece. So. Like, I don't tweet during Mad Men or during the shows I recap, like Breaking Bad. I don't pay any attention to what people are saying, then, and right. and I don't read what anyone else writes until I have finished my piece. But then once that's done, I feel really lucky to be working in the same field as so many smart and interesting thinkers, so then I can immediately then go read, you know, I can go read Alan Steppenwall, or I can read Mo Ryan, um, or I can read some of the people at Vulture, and, you know, and, and then and then we can all sort of talk around and to each other and it's kind of fun
3: yeah no that's that's what I've like because it, it I mean my own personal relationship especially from the television perspective it's like you know like my 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 first band's EP I have a song about uh how television is is like one of the worst things to you know ever pervade within our culture because and I wrote that song like you know late 90s when like sitcoms were um you know king and then like now I see where my relationship with television is now and you know, all those shows that you and the rest of your colleagues at Grantland work on as far as uh, the criticism is concerned, it's, you know, it, it's it's amazing. In my opinion has you know, completely done a 180. And so I do think that everybody that's contributing to the conversation from a criticism standpoint, heightens the uh, enjoyment, no matter how much a person is committed to, you know, reading every single recap or what have you. It definitely does feel and I know you guys have discussed this on your podcast where it's like, um, the quality that gets put out in film is basically the same as kind of what's getting put out on television. Like you know, the whole it's just it, it's it, I believe it's just a reality now. You know, and I'm sure.
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I, honestly, I, I still think like the the best movies of the year are are just are just and they're just different. You know, they're contained works of art in a different way. Whereas a yeah. successful TV show is 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 really about how you string together the narrative and continue it. And a movie's you know closed, and television is sort of naturally open ended. So that that appeals to me It just makes it hard for me to compare the two but in terms of just character work and consistency in terms of storytelling and writing i think that most of the best work is now migrated to tv which is you know really rewarding for me to get to write about it
3: yeah, yeah for sure um well yeah i will let you go because i could probably talk to you for another 40 minutes and that would um, you know just be uh punishing for you and i want to do that to
4: you <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate
3: it <laughs> yeah cool so there you go, there's uh, Andy Greenwald, um, and I set this up via Twitter, which is like, it kind of blows my mind that I'm able to use that as a tool and be like, hey, I would love to interview you, and people are generally responsive, and they're like, yeah, that sounds interesting, obviously, I'm not just some, I, I, I like to put it in context, I'm not just some random, you know, dude being like, hey, I'm going to interview you for a blog that is, you know, three people view, including my mom. Um, so yeah, Andy was gracious enough to obviously want to do this and, uh, yeah, I hope you learned a little bit more about cultural criticism, Quakers, all that type of stuff. Um, yeah, until next week, be safe.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need,